Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Carol Boy, the CEO of Community Alliance, which serves those living with mental illness and substance use disorders. She talks about changes in how mental illness is treated and how it is talked about publicly, as well as her tenure over more than four decades as a leader called to a purpose worth roaring about. There's a pathway here to recovery, to mental health, to you having a purpose and not just being a diagnosis. And we will do everything in our power to help you with that. Not gonna happen tomorrow, but we're gonna be here tomorrow to help you start start on that journey. Carol Boy has served as president and CEO of Community Alliance for 42 years. As the first and only CEO of this nonprofit organization that now serves nearly 6,000 people annually across the metropolitan Omaha and surrounding five counties area, she has overseen provision of services for people living with mental illness and substance use disorders. Boy has been recognized by numerous professional and consumer groups for her leadership and advocacy in this field. Boy graduated from the University of Nebraska at Omaha with a master's in public administration and received her bachelor's degree in social work and sociology from Concordia University in Seward, Nebraska. Carol Boy, welcome to Lives. Hi, thank you for having me. So the phrase or reference to mental illness is, is something that I feel like we hear a lot, we talk about a lot, but as far as you're concerned and Community Alliance is concerned, what are we talking about when we reference mental illness? Well, you're absolutely right that mental illness means a lot to folks. Um, we often use the term mental illness and mental health kind of interchangeably, and they're really two different things. Uh, mental illness is a, a biologically-based illness. It has symptoms. It responds to medication. Uh, it really, and when, I, when we talk about serious mental illnesses, which is um, a lot of what Community Alliance does is, is help people with serious mental illness. We're primarily talking about um, diseases such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, chronic depression, uh, things like that, all of which, like I said, ha have a basis, a physiological basis, um, can be treated medically, needs to be treated medically. You don't talk yourself out of of um, a psychosis or a, or a thought disorder. Um, and, and so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what um, we would call mental health challenges, mental health issues. And that could range from, I just bro um, broke up with my boyfriend and I'm not, I'm not thinking straight or, you know, or, or my self-esteem um, has been damaged. Um, I don't have confidence to move on. It can be um, someone who's in grief uh, for, from a loss. Uh, it also can encompass people who who are functioning really well but may have an anxiety disorder um, that that is not disabling but it it interferes with function. 
Um, so our community alliance, like I said, predominantly the folks that we we work with are people with the serious mental illnesses that require both medical and our jargon, psychosocial uh, supports, community supports. We also can and do help people who are who are facing a here and now mental health challenge that maybe with with some short-term therapy or other kind of support, we can help them uh, work their way through it. What was the conversation like around mental illness when you were first encountering it, you know, 40-plus years ago? Mm-hmm. I came into the, into the mental health field uh, when I was in, in my early 20s. And I, I distinctly remember in my interview for the position as the as the first executive director of Community Alliance, asking questions that I would be appalled at now. Questions about what what about safety? What about people doing harm to themselves or or others? It, you know some of some of the myths that went around. Can people really be be helped in all of this? And I had a degree in social work, but I had probably social work, mental health 101, and and that was about all that happened. The difference was, in terms of the stigma, is that we were coming out of the hospitalization age where anyone with a serious mental illness typically was institutionalized and was going to be there for the majority of their life, and there wasn't a lot. And we were coming out of that, uh, and family members who started Community Alliance were, were seeing their loved ones, typically ad- adult dependent children of theirs, coming out of these hospitals and institutions and being discharged into the community, not having a place to live. So, so they would live as dependents, adult dependents with their families. Medications were improving, but n- not nearly where they are now. And a kind of a new revolving door appeared where, where people would go to an institution, typically a state hospital, they would be discharged, they'd live with their parents for a while, they would be told to, to take these medications, many of which had really strong side effects. There would be a relapse of some sort. They'd go back to the institution, and, and we would kind of circle around. So these family members, they were um, three different families who said, we ought to do better here. We ought to do something better. And the first thing that they wanted for their children, for their loved ones, was a place to live on their own so that there was at least some level of independence on that and then providing some kind of support for them to stay living on their own, helping them take their medication, helping them um, make sure they paid their rent, things things like that. That's where we started. But getting back to your question about stigma, so when I was hired, you know, the first task, the first assignment was to go find some apartments. For people, we were we were going to rent some apartments, guarantee the rent, and sublet them to folks. I can't tell you how difficult it was to find landlords who were willing to rent to someone with a mental illness. The stigma was very, very real, and it continues today. It may not be quite so blatant. The other thing I would say to that is that 
over the course of 40 years, somewhere fairly early in my career, I remember talking to my mother kind of about this stigma that, that I didn't really understand it. And the more I, I learned about mental health, that there was not a basis for it. Um, and she told me, she said, you know, when I was a little girl, even as a young, young adult, you couldn't say the word cancer at the dinner table. That wasn't polite conversation. If someone had cancer, that was a very quiet kind of thing. And now look, we, we celebrate cancer survivors and, and that's grown as well. So that, that gave me some sense of, of hope, but also some sense of, of direction of, of we needed, we needed, we have an event called Breaking the Silence. We need to start talking about it. It can't be a secret. It's, it, it affects one in four Nebraskans. So we have to do something about it. You've talked about advances in how we talk about mental illness and also some of the practical changes too, like uh, pharmaceuticals and that sort of thing. So how is the public perception, if it is different, how is the public perception now, the public um, conversation around our mental well-being, our mental uh, you know, illness struggles different today? Um, in a num- in number of ways. When, it, when Community Alliance first started, it was a program for the chronically mentally ill that that was the official label and then we moved to to labels like severe and persistent mental illness all kind of judgmental if if you will and now we talk about we work on we train to people first language it's people with with mental illness it's it's just like i'm a person with diabetes i I don't want to be a diabetic. I'm a person who happens to have diabetes. Um, so I, language has changed, and just making it individualized, identifiable um, as a person first, uh, then that helps a lot. And we've worked over the years uh, to change that with law enforcement, with the media, uh, movies, Television, media, doesn't it's not so quick to to characterize those with with mental illness as a dangerous psychotic, uh, the serial killer or or what have you. You know some of those stereotypes have been broken down, and then giving families the information, families, friends, loved ones, the information and the permission to talk about what's going on. Another short story. Um, Very early at Community Alliance, we had um, board of directors like all nonprofits do, but we had two women on our board of directors. It turns out, and they both shared this story with me uh, very early on, it turns out that they had worked together for over 30 years at Mutual of Omaha. They had carpooled together. One had a son with schizophrenia, one had a daughter with schizophrenia. In those 30 plus years, they never shared that with each other because of the stigma, the shame, the, the I don't, I feel so alone, no one else has to go through that, all of those kinds of things. It was only when they happened to end up on our board through different channels 
that they recognize as, as lo- lifelong colleagues at least or friends at most that they had been going through a similar journey. So that's how it was 40 years ago. Now, again, we're, we now celebrate people's recovery from mental illness. I think that's the other difference. I think no one thought recovery was really possible back then, and now we're constantly focusing on recovery. That may mean something different to every person, but it is not lifelong disability. Does mental illness happen to you? Is it something you are born with? Is it something that can only be treated pharmaceutically? what are some of the sort of permutations of how mental illness manifests in a person? Oh, boy, no, this this is where I want to give you my disclaimer. I am not a clinician. I I am a bachelor's level social worker who turned into a to an administrator, a bureaucrat. Um, but I hang around a lot of really smart people and have learned. So. If you have a serious mental illness, there's that physiological component to it that medicine can can and almost is necessary to help to abate what we what we call the acute symptoms or the positive symptoms, meaning your your thoughts your thoughts are somewhat you have trouble thinking straight and and problem solving. It really is a thought disorder in a lot of cases. Uh, how you handle anxiety, how how you problem solve. But one of the insidious things about um, mental illness is that there's also what they call the negative symptoms, which really affect your, your daily living, your daily functioning. So that same difficulty in problem solving and in perception that you, that you have of a situation because of the thought disorder also interferes with your ability to perform on the job in a consistent way. It it can interfere with your personal hygiene, uh, your your inter, your social relationships, and how how to handle conflict and and um, logically rationally approach things. So, uh, medicine is is almost always, in with the serious mental illnesses, is almost always necessary. It is not necessarily sufficient to, to, treat, to treat that illness. And that's a lot where, where Community Alliance started, was to, the folks that we dealt with early were getting medical treatment and medications. They weren't getting any help with that day-to-day living and, and functional uh, deterioration that was going on. You've touched a little bit on this, but I do want to expand a little on what are some of the common misperceptions that you come across, some of the myths, the stereotypes about mental illness itself or the, or the people that are struggling with some form of uh, mental uh, disorder. One specifically that I want to perhaps begin with is almost a sort of blowback phenomenon that now we're more open about talking about our mental well-being, that there's some pushback that people are claiming their anxiety is now something, you know, beyond what back in my day we just call that 
get over yourself syndrome. So I, I'm curious, you know, what are some of the misperceptions and, you know, myths that you're hearing lately? That's, that's a tough question because everyone experiences their discomfort, their situation very, very differently, very personally. It's very individualized. We all get blue. We all get down sometimes. We all get sad. That doesn't mean that I have a mental illness. It might not even mean I have a mental health problem. It means I'm human and things are gonna happen. There's times I will get giddy and probably think that, that I'm doing so much better. My perception of self and how I'm doing is, is maybe not totally tied to the facts of the situation. Again, that doesn't mean that I'm manic. It, it means that I am an individual and feeling what I feel, yet we can't discount those feelings and how people process that. When you're dealing with mental illness, there are therapeutic pathways and medical pathways to helping people. And that medication is really, really important, but also the, the supports um, and the you know, taking the responsibility to, to change aspects of your life. When I'm just blue, let's say, I may need some short-term therapy to figure out what are the steps I need to do to, to get out of that, but I may or may not need medication. What I probably benefit most from is someone helping me how to figure out what steps one, two, three, and four are, and then following through on, on that. It, it's just, it's a different approach. It's a parallel approach. Sometimes uh, it's a concurrent approach. One is a chronic illness. The other is a situational situation. Uh, you were born in California. Uh, I know you uh, are one of five siblings. Um, tell me a little bit about you know your family context and and what stands out to you from your childhood. I grew up in a in, a, um, in California in a very faith based uh, family. My father was um, was a Lutheran minister. My two brothers are Lutheran ministers. I have two sisters who went down the parochial school teaching uh, road. So I guess if there's five of us and I just accounted for four of my siblings, that makes me the the rogue who did not go into church full-time church work. Uh, the rest of my family did. And yet, you know, servant leadership, giving to others, that that's all that was part of our upbringing. I distinctly credit my parents for for bringing all of us up with an idea that, that we give, uh, we don't judge, we, we practice our values and our faith. And I, that's probably one of the most fundamental parts of, of my growing up with that. The, and yet, and that also explains how I ended up from California at, at a Lutheran college in Nebraska uh, instead of, oh my gosh, back in the day, Berkeley or, you know, where all those hippies were or what have you. I, I think that um, as time goes on, that you, you figure out what your impact is going to be 
and you you live by your principles and and your vision for something that's better. I don't think that that I ever scoped out a a career that said I was going to stay anywhere for 40 years. It um, it just kind of happened. I started in social work. To me, that was that resonated more with me than than full time church work. But I I still think it's a vocation, not just a career. And life happened. So you're the middle of five. I'm the second youngest, so I'm close to the middle, yeah. Okay. I've heard you declare that being close, as it were, to the middle of the pack, that you were a rebellious one. <laughs> I and don't – where did you hear that? Okay. <laughs> well, so how, how did that show up in, in, in those rebellious years? I was probably more ready to be independent sooner than than several of my siblings, for sure. Uh, I was more willing to argue the point than I think any of my other siblings did. Yeah, I I think that's true, and and I I enjoyed, I still do, um, maybe a little less so, but I enjoyed. I kind of lived in in college years and early adulthood of, you know, I I want to experience things. I growing up in the environment that I did, we weren't allowed to experience some things that maybe my peers were able to do, and and nothing real rogue, I don't think. Um, but I was I did want to to check some things out. I I never drank alcohol. In high school, you know, I know a lot of my peers did, but that just wasn't okay. I was a preacher's kid, and you don't do those things. And um, so I had to experience alcohol when I was in college, probably a little bit too much. Um, but it it was college, and you know, back then you could you could do stupid things and didn't pay you know pay a lifetime price for it. Uh, so I think that it. Um, in that way, I probably was a bit more rebellious than than my siblings. It's it it comes back around. You explained a little bit about how you ended up at Concordia. Mm-hmm. What was the you know the, the the final element of the decision to come to Nebraska to study and why sociology? Well, the final decision was made by my parents, and there was no mistake about that. There, there. I don't remember feeling like I, I had a choice, and I don't say that resentfully. I just, it was just kind of a given that we were going to do that. Um, what made the decision social work? I knew I didn't want to be a teacher, a parochial school teacher, which, and at the time, Concordia was called Concordia Teachers College, uh, and. You know, again, kind of back in the day, I didn't know things like law and engineering and, you know, those types of things were available to um, a young a young woman uh, who, yeah, I, I don't want to make it sound like we, I lived in the dark ages, but it, it just wasn't part of the, the uh, discussion at that time. So, you know, my choices were limited and first couple of years in college, you take different courses, and um, political science very much interested me. 
I, I really enjoyed that. And sociology really interested me. And so we just kind of fell into, okay, so I, social justice, um, social work, social work right now is often equated with being a therapist. There, there's another part of social work that really resonates with me, which is which is community organization and social justice issues. And I was really drawn to that. Uh, so it, again, that kind of happened. I don't know that I thought about it, but but it was the thing I was interested in, not education. The way you describe that makes me feel as if, maybe not at a conscious level, but there was some internal orientation happening for you, to you, by you, pointing you in a direction that really spoke to your values? I think so. I Things, so it was post-60s, but you're talking the 70s and, and all the social unrest uh, and social injustice, that really bothered me on a very personal level. And I remember one of my best friends in high school was... Um, was Japanese and um, Buddhist, and and that really intrigued me, and you know started reading about Buddhism and and that intrigued me. That that really wasn't allowed in my, in my family to be interested in that, but I didn't like the bias that I saw towards my friend, that that wasn't right. When I came to Nebraska, the sign on the um, skating rink still said, uh, whites only. It was, it was desegregated, but the sign was still there. And I couldn't believe that. And that really bothered me. We had the first Native American um, in our class of, of, in the school's history. And he wasn't treated well, and that really bothered me. So I, I think it was some experiences, some awareness, but yes, a values that, that there's right and wrong. And for me, there was a clarity there that maybe some of my peers didn't didn't see. And the pathway then was to try to do something about it. That loss comment you made, the pathway was to see if you could do something about it. Did, were you having an epiphany at that point that th this was going to be a, a you know, an, an avenue that you wanted to pursue in your life somehow? I probably wasn't smart enough to think about it. I know what I was drawn to. I don't know that I put it in much of a larger context other than the idealism of a of a 20-year-old who's, you know, we'd sit around and we were together and we were going to change the world. That's that's what you do in college, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy with hindsight, of course, to look back because given that I read it out at the top of the show, it's it's pretty clear to listeners, uh, you've been with Community Alliance for 42 years, so th that has been the arc of your life. Tell me about how that came about. Like, How, how did you come to assume mm -hmm. this role? Mm -hmm. I started working with, with kids, I, um, but I had... I, I had a, you know a couple of entry level jobs, um, and I was working for a small group home. And suddenly the director wasn't wasn't there anymore. I mean, I I think he got fired or he you know he he left or what have you, and so I was made interim 
director. Again, this was a really small kind of organization, but it was a residential program. So kind of go back to what our founders wanted, first and foremost, was a safe residence, independent residence for their adult children. And then, you know, again, it wasn't anything planned. I answered a newspaper ad. <laughs> That's back when you found jobs via newspapers. Um, I wanted, I knew I wanted to finish my, I wanted to get a gra graduate degree because I did like administration. I liked the ability to not just work with your caseload, but try to, to do systems change. I think I've always been a systems, a, a systems um, person. You know, I see things, uh, yes, on, on that individual level, but also on a systems level. And I think that's why I liked administration, because you look at things that way. So I, I answered the newspaper ad. I did an interview. Um, I was cheap. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. They hired me as their, their first person. I did want to go to graduate school so that I could continue administration. And the fact that this was was in Omaha and they had some programs, either a social work program or eventually I decided to go into public administration. They had those degrees. I, at the time I was looking at other universities in other, other parts of the country, thinking maybe I'd go back to California, but that's not what happened. How have you been able to continue in, the, in a role like this for so long? I think of two things with that. One is that there was always a new challenge. There was always something new. Every service that Community Alliance took on came as a direct, it still does, comes as a direct response to there's a need out there that no one is filling. So it started with housing. Then it was, well, what are they going to do? What are the folks, we, we got an apartment, but what are they going to do all day that's meaningful? What's the reason for getting up in the morning? It Otherwise, we've just given them a community institution in in many ways and made it harder for them because now they have to go multiple places to to get all their needs met. So that was the start of, our, of a day program that said, let's start working on those skills that maybe the illness has has taken away from you. Let's start working on some stamina so that maybe you can go back to work, those types of things. So that came about and that then led to development of a work program and that led to to something else. It, it really wasn't until our second, third decade actually that we actually introduced the actual medical aspects of this because we were working on housing, on vocational services, on social services, community safety, but there was always a need that propelled us. We got into the homeless outreach services because the shelters came to us and said, you call yourself a mental health agency. They were nicer than this, but, but the message was clear and, and clearly received that we're a mental health agency. A third of the people that are in our shelters need mental health care. Where are you? And, and so we said, you're right. Nobody, no one's focusing on that group. So those challenges were always there. The community challenges also were always there. Um, I 
I faced my my uh, share of hostile neighborhood associations who didn't want housing in their neighborhood for people, and you know, kind of hostile legislatures and and city councils who who weren't sure that that's where we should be investing our dollars. So I learned advocacy over time as well. Um, and then the, the other thought that comes to me, and this, this, maybe this is the epiphany you were, you were asking about earlier, somewhere in all of this, because I, was, I always just assumed you move on to the next place and the next place, um, and I had some opportunities to, to move elsewhere. Uh, and also get gov involved in government, which is kind of the ultimate systems uh, quagmire, if you will, to uh, to making to making change. And it was during one of those times with a with a an opportunity that that really did draw me, and and intellectually was was really achieving, starting to achieve some of those things that I I realized. And it really was a recognition that I actually was very content and felt like I was making a difference and had a better chance of making a difference in a nonprofit organization that was making real change uh, than I would be becoming um, someone within a, a much larger bureaucracy. And after that, I guess I stopped looking. or for that and and you know that probably happened 20 years into my career but it it was the time that said oh so here's the achievement you think you've been looking for and the grass isn't greener on the other side i i hope you'll forgive this question because it's as it were a counterpoint to what you've just mm -hmm. been sharing i was curious about how you stay in a position for so long, and you've talked about the your own personal growth, the growth of the organization, but also how it was responding to community needs. Mm -hmm. But if I turn that around, uh, can I ask, should you still be a leader of the organization, or should anyone be a leader of an organization for such a long period of time? That is a really important question, and I think any good leader has to look at that. At what point uh, is it time to hand the reins over? Especially, uh, yeah, technically I wasn't a founder, but I've been there from the beginning. And, and you know, there's a lot of literature on that I, that I've read. I've talked with our board about it any number of times. And, you know, how do you hand the, the reins over and when do you want to do that? I think... One of the things I've, I've done through the second half of my career is have candid conversations with friends and colleagues and my leadership board and all that, which is if you if you feel that, let's 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 be open and talk about it because I question it too. I, I think, like I said, any good leader should do that. Given my age, that time is coming in anyway, the, that retirement, is on the horizon. I think you got to honestly evaluate: Do you have the energy? 
and are you still still making a difference? We passed some really significant legislation this past year uh, that should should help sustain mental health services, uh, both in terms of, of kind of core services that are necessary and in terms of state and federal funding. That will be a legacy, not for me, but a, a, something that will carry on in the system. And that's a, that's my idea that there's another challenge and another test that I can still be effective in in doing that. When, when I can't be, um, whether that was t- at the 10-year point, the 20-year point, 30 or 40-year point, then yes, you gotta, you gotta do yourself a favor, you gotta do um, the organization. The loyalty has to be to to the organization, I believe that it's it's time to move on. You have been shaped by the organization. You clearly have shaped it too. You've shaped the narrative around mental illness in our community too, given your role here. How have you managed, maintained, um, adapted the internal culture for Community Alliance, and, and I'm thinking about the, the people that you have working there, in a way that has been responsive not only to what, you know, just people need as employees so they can grow and flourish, but also so that they can do the job of serving people as they need to be served. Mm-hmm. That's probably the ultimate answer in terms of when is the time for a leader to leave or when is it okay for a leader to to stay one has to focus on the culture of the organization and whether you're still shaping that culture ours is a culture of service it is a culture of of um how can i help you and it's a culture that that permeates our entire organization we insist on, we embrace, we we teach, and we witness every day that that the respect and dignity and the and the welcoming, the welcome that we do to anyone who walks through our door, who more than likely the first time they walk through our door is not in great shape and probably doesn't have a lot of hope uh, to their situation, from that receptionist. Who, who greets them, to the intake person, to the uh, person that's vacuuming, you know, and emptying the trash, you know, to their social worker, their doctor, um, and the accountants and me need to, to let them know that they're welcome, that they're respected, and that we want to help in any way we can. That we will never ever say we can fix this um, we often we often say uh, to the people we serve that we'll walk alongside you we'll give you lots of tools and and help with the motivation when you hit the hot spots believe in you and all that but the real hard work comes from the individual and and so that is a culture that we have within the organization uh, and the expectations, and and that moves from person to person, you know, department to department, and it's one that will will perpetuate beyond me if I've done my job right. And 
again, kind of going back, I would expect, and I feel I have close enough, honest enough friends and colleagues that, that if that leaves me, that capability, uh, that too is a, is another time to to move on. So community alliance is is filled with very committed people, people who work very hard, but people who really like working with and are very good at and very respectful of the people that they work with and and the clients that come to me. I went, one other thing that I'm going to repeat because I've repeated it often is that, as you know, we're we're doing a capital campaign and building a new building, and it's given me an opportunity to talk to a lot of community members in 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 a different way as to what our vision is uh, for our community and for the people we serve and and how we want the community to participate. But one com one conversation I had with one of these community leaders whose family had also been impacted by mental illness. And what he said to me is he said, you know, when I walk in there with my loved one, I don't expect you to fix it. I don't even expect you to have the answers or some kind of sequential uh, steps and, and a plan when I first come in. But what I do expect is to leave with a little bit more hope than when I walked in that tomorrow can be better, and we know what the next step is gonna be. That's what I want as a family member. And I have repeated that over and over again to our staff and to myself. That's what we're trying to do, is that there's a pathway here to recovery, to to mental health, to to you having a purpose and not just being a diagnosis. And we will do everything in our power to help you with that. Not going to happen tomorrow, but we're going to be here tomorrow to help you start start on that journey. You've been involved in this field, in serving people for more than four decades. Where do you find your hope? You find that incrementally. You find that by you, you see a challenge and. Step by step, it's the same thing. It, you overcome something. There was a time, there was a time that Nebraska was ranked 49th in the country in terms of funding for mental health. So speed that clock upwards, and we just passed ma major legislation. Uh, the the education of legislators, the 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 advocacy that that has. The, the the voice that that we have helped families to gain in advocating uh, that's huge and so you, you you see that yeah there's days that I get very discouraged um, and and it's it's not just age that makes me feel very tired at times but you you have to you have to stop and rewind a little bit and say look at where we've come we, um, in recent years, have gone through great events, specifically mm -hmm. the Great Recession around sort of 2008, 9, 10, and then, of course, most recently, a global pandemic. And these have been uh, global catastrophes that have 
rocked whole systems and countries out of kilter, let alone individuals. How did you manage to get through that? I think that the pandemic affected all of us, individually and collectively. There is absolutely no doubt. And I think that it absolutely was the hardest time in, in my career because not just that I, we, we all worried about ourselves, we all worried about our loved ones, but having the responsibility for keeping staff and clients safe was really important. And yet the services that we provide, we couldn't just shut down. And so it, it it was hard, and it and it, if, it affected our staff as well. So it's the same. Every, lots of people experience this: the disengagement, the isolation, the 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 anxiety of Am I going to get it? Is someone going to live? Is someone going to die? Um, and then then um, how do you keep people? still getting a pay still get a paycheck livelihood um, you know that was a concern how do you take care of the well-being of your staff even while we're trying to take care of the well-being of of the of our clients it, it was difficult and it, it took its toll on every aspect uh, work and and home life yet I saw some of the some of the best work and people stepping up uh, you know watch word for us was we all need to give each other some grace everyone's trying to do the best they can in this and you make decisions day by day and even government which has a whole bunch of rules as to how we can do things and and uh, how and how we cannot do things for instance um, Talking to someone on the telephone uh, pre-pandemic was, was not a service. They had to come in, or we had to go see them, and it had to be face-to-face -face and, and all of that. Those rules went by the wayside, and there was, there was a trust among regulator and regulated entities that we were all doing the best we can, and let's just keep people safe. You know, let's get the mass out. We gave, maybe I don't know that I should admit this in public, but I think I can. But we sent we sent um, a medical assistant out to give someone their shot in the parking lot, parking lot because you could you weren't allowed to go into someone's home. They didn't want you in their home, but they needed their shot or their mental health was going to to be. We we took lawn chairs with our, you know, so that we could sit outside and talk to talk to folks. Uh, telehealth became widely used. And so the, the ingenuity, the creativity, the resiliency experienced and, and demonstrated by staff and client and community alike. That's the other thing I would say. I've never seen and was so grateful for the, the collaboration among colleague organizations, there, there was no competition. Uh, if someone needed something, we we readily gave it, even if we didn't have it, and vice versa. It, 
we just figured it out and and that was the positive thing about that just despite all the politics that that emerged over time and all of that here in omaha nebraska here in nebraska we did pretty darn well i think in in making the best out of things and and we'll be forever grateful um to colleagues and to our staff um and to people we work with that that we we made it through you shared with us how early in your life you had this inclination towards this awareness of a need for justice and fairness and just a, a, a betterment of the world and a, a distinction between what was right and wrong and here we are now uh, you know more than four decades past that and I've heard you say something along the lines that at some point in your life you need to have a sense of what it is you want to roar about that was the language I heard you use. What did you want to stand toe-to-toe for? And do you feel, as you look back on the span of your life now, that even though perhaps you didn't know it in your 20s, that you've been doing that? This this has been your calling, even if you didn't know it at the time. Yeah, yeah I, and it has centered around you know, the whole mental health sphere, but it, it's broader than that. Injustice really bothers me. Uh, and I so firmly believe, and I think you see that manifested at, at Community Alliance, that every person, regardless of what's going on with them, deserves dignity and respect. And that goes beyond having a mental illness or maybe an intellectual disability to communities of color, to the LGBTQ community. My faith, my values say, I haven't walked in their shoes. I have no right to judge. I think that's what I've practiced in my career. I think that that's what I feel good about in in my career, that, that maybe I've made this help make this world or my community a little bit more open, um, a little bit more accepting, and providing people the opportunity to, to achieve their purpose. Carol, CEO and President of Community Alliance. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me and letting me, letting me talk about some of the things that are important to me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.